everybody! Welcome back! Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed. This is the movie review podcast where we review movies on a podcast. <laughs> we're, we're the first to think of it, too. It's oh. never been done before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Turns out, if you, after you see a movie, you can talk about it. <laughs> and you can put it on the internet. What? And even though people don't really refer to iPods a lot anymore, the term mm. podcast has stuck. Yes. It's a re- retronym, I believe, is the that word. Yes, well, in any case. Well, we're still doing it, damn it. I know it's old hat. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. I write for the rap. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film. Mm. Senior staff writer now. St- still milking then, that, aren't yeah. we? Well, yeah, you know, like, it just happened. I think yeah. I'm okay. No, no. I think I'm allowed for a little bit. No, I'm kidding. And then I'll be done. No, no. You, you deserve to be proud of your accomplishments. You're, you're actually... You're a great writer, and I'm glad oh, you found a place that appreciates I, you. I, I'm, I'm glad they just let me print the silly garbage that I want to... They, as a special See, see what treat, he does? He's, he's calling his work silly garbage. He's as wonderful. A, as a special treat, though, however, my editor did let me write a top ten list mm-hmm. of the best episodes of Tiny Toon Adventures, ah. a show that was very, very important to me when I was 12. Right. Uh... For my money, mm. it's a controversial statement. Better than Animaniacs. You've you've mentioned uh, this before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Animaniacs had higher highs, but it had mm. way lower lows. And I feel like Tiny Toons ro- rode the line a little bit better, kind of mm. more consistent quality. Uh, this is all academic, though, because they are both inferior to Freakazoid. Well, we can all agree on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and lateral to Hysteria. Hysteria is better show than it got credit for. Ah, Hysteria is quite good, actually. Mm. We're talking about '90s cartoon shows. Yeah, that, that, that's not that really kid, what we do. Kids WB programs produced by Steven Spielberg, and that's why mid, you're here. Mid to late, or I guess throughout the '90s. Uh, this week on Critically Reclaimed, we're uh, we're going to be talking about some movies that we missed last week because uh, we were doing our best movies of the year list. And that's right. The first weekend of the year, there usually aren't a lot of releases, uh, and we're also going to be uh, playing some catch up with this weekend as well. Uh, this weekend is actually a little interesting because. We usually don't record this until Sunday night, so it gives us a lot of time to watch a bunch of movies. Uh, however, this week, because Whitney's actually going away for a few I'm days... going to be out, out of town for a little bit. Uh, we're recording it earlier, and as a result, I have seen fewer films. I normally would have an mm-hmm. extra day and a half uh, to catch up. Yeah. So, uh, But we're going to be reviewing. We're going to be reviewing the horror movie Night Swim, uh, the beekeeping movie The Beekeeper... Uh, so not is it as good as Yuli's goals? That's what we'll have to wait for. We'll find out. Uh, the uh, good grieving movie, Good Grief. It is about grieving. Okay, but is it good? We'll find out. Uh, the uh, movie uh, about your neighbors uh, who things befall them, uh, <laughs> destroy all neighbors. Uh, the, a movie about a book. Uh, it's called The Book of Clarence, uh, and a movie about living in a city called Occupied City. Uh, yes. <laughs> very, I, that's that's some, what uh, in that one mouth. Pr- pretty pretty uh, broad and gen- general descriptions to all of those movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, these, did, these, are all, these are all movies. I, and I'll, I'll ask you right here on mic, uh, mm. did you want me to talk about The Holdovers? Because I caught up with it. Well, now you've put me on the spot, and yeah. now like half the audience is saying, no, fuck off. And no. the other half <laughs> is saying, like, yes, I really want to talk about The Holdovers for some reason. And now yeah. we have to, oh, just because you threw up. me under the bus uh, like that. I was like, that came out months Months ago, do we really need to review came, everything? It we came catch out up a on? month ago. Um, no, it came out in October. Oh, did it? Yes. All right. Well, it was a Christmas movie. 
Is it Christmas? No, just I finally caught up with it, and it's a big awards contender, and I thought I'd talk about it for a fine, little bit. Fine, we can if talk you want about well, Fine, we'll talk about the holdovers. Right. Fuck it, why not? It's I'll not be, like we don't have enough movies. I'll be very brief. I, yeah. I've seen the holdovers. All right, so we can talk about it. We can talk. All right. Talk, will you? Talk. Hold, holdovers is the new film from Alexander Payne. No, it's the old film from Alexander Payne. It came out months ago. It's the newest film from Alexander Payne. Quit oh, being semantic. Are we starting with it? Okay, fine. <laughs> fuck it. <laughs> we'll get it out of the way first. Are dad and dad going to fight? <laughs> I feel no bitterness about this. I just want to talk about movies. All right, fine. Uh, we'll talk about the holdovers. Fine. Uh, Alexander Payne had uh, two not very good movies in a row. Because mm. he did... Uh, uh, Nebraska, which was fair, um, and uh, and then yeah. he, and then he did um, downsizing, which oh, was not good. Oh my god, that's a terrible motion picture. Like it, it had an interesting sci-fi concept. The idea mm. was uh, they invented a technology that can shrink you down to like an inch tall, <laughs> and in so doing, you would be your dollars would stretch further because you're using fewer resources. Well, and also the and, Earth's resources would stretch further. Yeah, so theory anyway. It, it, part of it was environmental, part of it was economic, and when they shrank down, they found that there were still economic strata. There were still yeah. castes in even tiny person society. Yeah. And uh, it did not explore those concepts very well. No. Uh, it wanted so bad to be like the new idiocracy or something. Yeah, like some sort like of it was like, supposed to be this quirky comedy and Alexander Payne doesn't, think. doesn't know how to make that kind of movie. No, he doesn't. Uh, but he's back and I feel like um, he's back with sort of sweet interpersonal dramas, which is what he excels in. Uh, and this takes place in 1970. It takes place at a uh, posh b- uh, boarding school. Mm-hmm. Like, like, a, like, a, a, like, a, like, we've been in this country for four, like, for four hundred years. Yeah, like a kind of thing. A sleepaway yeah. high school, and it's about the classics teacher, who's mm-hmm. played by Paul Giamatti, uh, and how he has been roped into a, a rather undesirable task. There are certain kids who aren't, who don't have anywhere to go for a Christmas vacation. Yeah, and this is actually true of a lot of mm-hmm. campuses that you know sleepaway or. Uh, live on campus uh, Mm. colleges some kids get to stay on campus throughout the break because they don't have a home to go to for whatever reason their parents are out of town maybe they maybe their parents have cut them loose whatever it is sometimes it's technical sometimes it's tragic but some kids have to stay behind and they need at least one professor and like one kitchen staff to stay behind Mm. to look after these kids yeah to make sure that they don't Mm. starve to death or Mm. uh, not do homework well, Paul Giamatti is very hardline about doing homework. He's a very strict teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul Giamatti, brilliant performance, by the way. Oh, he's great. Uh, because he rides that line because he has to play like a horrible curmudgeon who's really strict and kind of hateful and insults his yeah. students. The guy you believe is everyone's least yeah. favorite teacher. But he also has to be kind of lovable mm-hmm. so you can relate to him as he goes along his journey. He can't be too much of an asshole mm-hmm. at the beginning. Otherwise, you hate him when he well, sort of has his... Uh, his big change by the end. And I think Paul Giamatti very skillfully rides that line. Well, I think the the trick to that is actually, it's actually a screenwriting trick. Mm -hmm. This was written by uh, David Hemmingson. And... The th- and the, who who I might as uh, was an assistant writer on The Adventures of Pete and Pete, so that's how he got so good. Um, hmm. The trick is you need to introduce some kind of quality in a character that sort of redeems them. Uh, you know, in screenwriting terms, we call that save the cat. Uh, here, again, he's got to be a, a tough teacher, the kind of guy who, like, I will never change your grade, that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't care what happened in your personal life. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, he's brought into uh, the dean's 
office and it turns out that he's still in hot water because like the son of like a senator or something mm. was failing his class and he couldn't just pass him out with like a C minus. Yeah. He couldn't do it. Like he failed the class. He doesn't deserve to go. And and here's the thing. And I'm, you, I'm on Paul Giamatti's side. I'm also, well, I think anyone who yeah. isn't like, you know, like super into nepotism, like appreciates that good. You mm-hmm. should have standards. You should have academic standards. So, and there's a good bit at the beginning where it's just the last class before Christmas break and he's handing out the tests and everyone flunked them. And they people, people are like, hey, could we... He's like, oh, fine. I'll, uh, he agrees to do a makeup test. Mm. All right, fine. You Begrudgingly, can, it's like, fine, you fine. can have a makeup we'll test. We'll have a makeup test when you get back and it'll count for this much of your grade. And it shows him being kind of flexible. Like, and then someone... The slightest bit magnanimous. Yeah, and then and then one kid pushes his fucking luck and he says, uh, hey, listen, also, since it's like just before the Christmas break, can we just go? Mm-hmm. And he's like, you want to go? All right, fine. Makeup test canceled. You can go. That was your choice. You chose that one. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. Holy shit. I'm not going to be magnanimous twice in a day. Don't push I, your luck. And here's the thing. I like the character. Oh, I like, like him like, too. like he's a strict jerk and mm-hmm. he's like mean to the students, but the students are seen as like kind of lazy twerps. Yeah. So it's well, kind of okay. Well, it's strict but fair. That's yeah. what you want. You, if, if he's unfair, then he's a monster. If he's fair, he's just a hard teacher. Mm. Fine. So he's a, You're going to get those teacher, once in a while, yeah. you know? That's, that's, that's perfectly reasonable. So he's trapped over the holiday break uh, with the kitchen staff. She's played by Davine Joy Randolph, who mm. is really, really good in this Oh, movie. she's great. She, she's great in everything, but uh, she, her, it's a good role. It's 1970, and her son, who was a student at this school, mm-hmm. uh, just died in the war. Yeah. Went, yeah. went away to Vietnam, and the, the, one of the early scenes is his funeral. Um and it's, a memor- it's more of a memorial. I guess it's like, a memorial. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, like they yeah. just here, here. One of your fellow students has passed. There's because yeah. there's a chapel on campus, and so yeah, gives a sort of a, a memorial speech, and she yeah. is like stone faced, and yeah. she says later on in the movie that she wanted to stay for Christmas. She has family that she could have gone to visit, mm-hmm. but she wanted to stay on campus because that's like what she and her son had together was yeah. this school. Yeah. So like sharing that space, even though he's gone was important to yeah. her. And, uh, there's a couple other kids who are staying over the Christmas break and without explaining it's, if you've seen the trailer, you know, it ends up just being them and one kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I won't tell you how it ends up just being them and one kid, but it is funny. Uh, and the other kid that they're stuck with is a teenager played by Dominic Sessa. And he is an interesting combination of a sad sack and a brat. Yeah. yeah, well, he's he's a teenager. Yeah, where he he's in turns really insecure and really bold. He uh, you know yeah. is outspoken but really shy about certain things. He doesn't want to share a lot about his personal life because he's kind of bitter about it yeah. and he's very sad about it. But at the same time, he recognizes that he has a mean teacher and he wants to sort of confront this mean teacher. Yeah, um, I I like the way they handled the character. Yeah, and, yeah, and, um, good, and Dominic Sessa. This is one of his first roles, I understand. Um, uh, first time, first time I've really known. plays it pretty well, and I think he and Paul Giamatti especially like have a lot of mm. good banter. They they're able to sort of have good conversations. Yeah, I'm trying to think of everything. Mm. No, this is his first movie. Yeah, yeah, good for him. It comes in fully formed. Mm. Like it really does feel like a bit of a discovery. So that's cool. Um, so yeah, so they end up like spending the holidays together. Will they have something of a Christmas? Yes. Will they bond? Mm. Yes. And, and yeah, well, they, they have conversations. We learn more about yeah. them as they travel through the scenes. Yeah. Paul Giamatti is a, a little bit lovelorn, but, mm-hmm. you know, is a little uh, kind of stale about it. Like, he's not yeah. pursuing romance. 
Yeah. Um, this is an interesting movie because I, I feel as though... I've come to the conclusion that Alexander Payne mm. is a filmmaker who doesn't click with me. <laughs> you just don't do his movies. It, it, the pieces work, right? There's great characters in this movie. The performances are excellent. I love the way that the cinematography really does evoke an actual 70s aesthetic uh, uh, through, you know, the actual, like, celluloid. Mm. Like, it looks like it was filmed in the 70s in, in a good way. Um... I think there's wonderful moments. I think there's wonderful scenes. All the pieces are there. But something about the way that most Alexander Payne movies come together hmm. strikes me as a little disingenuous. There's something there's a hmm. falsity I'm I'm struggling with. And I think I noticed this in particular, like I, I think there's there's other Alexander Payne movies that have you know they've been critically acclaimed and I, I totally got it. But I think it was when the descendants came out. Okay. Where the heaps of praise won an Academy Award for its screenplay, and I saw it, mm. and I was like, "Why are we celebrating this? <laughs> like, it's, well, it's not bad, but it's also mm. not impactful." I couldn't tell you what happened in that movie, aside mm. from George Clooney's a dad, Shailene Woodley's a daughter, and I remember mm. like, "Oh, Shailene Woodley's very talented," and. They're in Hawaii. That's it. That's all I remember. It made no impression. Nebraska, mm. I remember it being kind of... I mean, it's black and white and it's depressing. And I saw it right after my dad died. So it hit me really, really hard. But in the years since, I, I don't... Mm. He's managed to find a way to tell these emotionally uh, uh, charged, almost melodrama stories in such a subdued way that they come across as, you know, very powerful and very artistic. And all I see are the machinations, I think, mm. a lot of the time. So even though Giamatti is great, Dominic Sessa is great, Dave Joy Randolph is great. In fact, there's a couple of supporting characters. They're all great. Even though it looks great. Something about, I just don't get the impression that the director believes it. Well, here, here's what I get from Alexander Payne, and, yeah. and this has happened to me with several of his films, because I do like The Descendants. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like About Schmidt is his best movie. Oh, I, I can't stand that movie. <laughs> okay, um, and, I'll, and I'll, I wasn't so big on uh, Nebraska, because I think he kind of whiffed it, but yeah. uh, The holdovers, holdovers is a little different because it doesn't have this moment, mm -hmm. but what Alexander Payne does was is essentially come up with one big emotional gut punch. Yeah. Like the, the big emotional crux that you would find uh, several of perhaps in a lesser melodrama. Okay. And he kind of backward, uh, engineers his entire film to lead up to that moment. Okay. Uh, Nebraska ended with a scene where, um, it's about this young, uh, this man, he has, has an elderly father who's a little bit like his mind is going a little bit. But he talks about how uh, he wants to sort of be seen by his town. So the final scene in that movie is uh, the Bruce Dern character gets to get behind the wheel of a truck and just drive down a street and everybody sees him. And that's sort yeah. of like the big emotional climax. That one didn't work for me as much. Mm. Uh, about Schmidt. It's about this sort of boring guy. His wife dies. Uh, it's the only time Jack Nicholson has played a normal person rather than just sort of like this bigger type of like emotionally extreme character. Because he's like good I, at those. I feel like I want to challenge that, like, but I'm struggling like, to think a, of About Schmidt is the only time he's ever played a boring guy, like an aggressively boring guy. And that's why I really like the performance. Yeah, even it's even really like about pieces, Schmidt. Is, he's trying to be a boring guy and he's not. Yeah, like he's actually really aggressive in that movie. Yeah. He pl plays a lot of aggressive characters. Um, and 
it's all about, you know, his daughter is getting married. He does, he's disconnected from his daughter. He's trying to, you know, sort of make friendships as an older man, and he just can't do that. And it all comes down to this moment of uh, this character that he's never met, this off-screen character that he's been writing letters about and sending, uh, sending money to. Mm. And he finally gets, like, a letter and realizes, wait a minute, he actually is still capable of, hum- like, human connection. Right. And the movie ends with that note. And I think that's really smart and really brilliant and very, very moving. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, I feel the same way about The Descendants. Uh, the Descendants, George Clooney isn't just a guy. He, like, is a a lawyer, like, an attorney who deals with land. And he's sort of trying to figure out what uh, his family land is is going to do go to on the mm-hmm. island of Kauai. And he has to sure. travel around and talk to people. But through doing all of this, he has to, you know, he kind of realizes that he's disconnected with his family. The final scene in that movie, uh-huh. after the drama is over, is he and his kids on the couch watching a movie, eating ice cream and not talking. And for some reason, that really got me. That just stabbed me right in the heart. And you I know, cried you and can, cried. You, you can sit uh, on the couch and not talk for free. You don't have to buy a ticket for that. Point is, they're finally connecting and just doing something incidentally as a family, and okay. that's great. Uh, okay. That's why I like the Descendants. Okay. Um, I get what you're saying with his artificiality because when he doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Well, you said it yourself. He backwards engineers, yeah. and there's and that requires. It doesn't. If, if you do it right, it doesn't always feel like contrivance, mm. but it is. You're trying well, to make this mm. thing work, and again, if you're skillful, it, it it doesn't read, and like you just go there naturally. And I feel as though I am being. I I, I can see myself being pushed along by someone who's subtle enough. Mm. That they don't always pick up on it, and I'm like, I'll get, I'll get there. Mm. Just, just chill. <laughs> All right, and don't yeah, fake he... chill. Actually, chill. I feel All like right? with with the holdovers, though, this is the first time where I feel like he's letting the characters uh, move the story along rather than backward engineering from a mm. moment. Because yeah. uh, there is sort of like an emotional climax that happens. Uh, mm. I think like the New Year's Eve sequence because it takes place over the the Christmas break. We get to New there's, Year's Eve. There's a couple of emotional there's, there's a couple moments, of emotional moments yeah. where these characters just sort of get to bond kind of naturally, and it feels yeah. like they're they're they are genuinely growing closer. Is it a Hollywood melodrama? Yeah, it's a. Uh, yeah. The, it's the design, like, It's a Christmas movie. They're yeah, designed. The, 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 uh, they want you to watch this every year. Yeah. The, uh, the the term my mom likes to use to describe a movie like this is a hanky movie. Sure. It, it'll make you cry. Yeah. Is it is it prof- emotionally profound if it makes you cry? No. No. There, there no. are. That's, that's, that's an easy thing there, to do. There are actually. very yeah. very uh, bad and shallow movies that have made me cry. If you it just want to make uh, someone cry, it's very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Ask any bully. <laughs> or or any movie with a dead dog at the end or a you know, dead, just, or yeah, a dead just, parent or, or, yeah. or a dead Macaulay Culkin or whatever yeah, just, like, just they, kill. they'd see without his glasses it's very very sad but it's easy to get you there yeah. <laughs> introduce a character you like have something really fucked up happen it's easy There's, in fact um this is going to be a really weird analogy, but in The Fly 2, it's actually a sequence. I, I don't in, even want to talk about it. In the movie The Fly 2. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> it's one of the most fucked up things. That movie's fucked up, The Fly 2. It's one of the most disgusting movies ever. Yeah. There's a lot of glop in that movie. Yeah, it's, it's not good either, which sucks, but like it's really it's, gross, especially it's, for like a mainstream studio movie. Like, it's oh my it's God. fun if you like glop, but it's not a great movie. But uh, Eric one, Stoltz yeah. plays the, the main guy in that movie. Yeah. The son of the Jeff Goldblum character. Yeah. Like part fly son of the like, so he's got like yeah. fly DNA in him and he's like super smart and he's like he's only 10 years old but he looks like Eric Stoltz already mm-hmm. and he's working on the teleportation machine and the girlfriend in that movie is played by Daphne Zuniga yeah. and uh, he says I've 
he doesn't even say to her like he's just been working on the the pods and he invites her over and he picks up a kitten uh-huh. Cute little poofy kitten, and he pets it a little bit, and he kisses it, and then he hands it to Daphne Zuniga, and she kind of pets it a little bit. He has gotten her attached to the cat. Uh-huh. We're attached to the cat. Yeah. There's been interaction with this little cat. We don't want anything bad to happen to that cat. It's not an incidental cat anymore. And then he puts it in the teleporter machine, uh-huh. which historically has turned animals inside out. It's like yeah. turned things into mush. It is not a, a doesn't have a good track record. Yeah. And he hits, like, the teleport button, and it starts to fire up, and Daphne Duzuniga is panicking. That's what a, an emotionally manipulative movie will do. It'll introduce something very sweet to you, yeah. and then put it in peril. Yeah. And, of course, in The Fly 2, the cat turns out okay. I don't, the, the filmmakers weren't so cruel that they, they well, do that and then murder the they, cat. They, they were cruel to the other animals, but um, the, not in reality, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah. But like, yeah, well, like in, in the first if, fly, there's if, a baboon if, sequence. It's pretty gross. If you think yeah. to yourself, "Oh, in that case, I'm gonna go watch the fly too," because nothing bad happens to the animal characters in that movie. Mm. Don't see the fly too. <laughs> <laughs> if that's if that's what you're thinking, right, you like, do not want to see that movie. Point, I'm glad point, that point we're the, the only the people holdovers. to compare the holdovers to the fly. Yeah, the holdovers movie. isn't as much like the fly too that's As, my point <laughs> well in some cases i wish it was but um no nobody should have more glop nobody gets turned into glop in this movie yeah like oh sorry we're, we're spending the the week with point our is. with our uh teleportation professor yes that's it. <laughs> <laughs> professor brendel can you help us um uh, I, I, there's, there's a lot i like in it though and again i like the pieces more than i like the whole and i do I, think that Paul Giamatti, Dave Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa are just a really fantastic, uh, fantastic, fantastic acting mm. trifecta. Yeah, they have a lot, yeah. a lot of good char- chemistry, yeah. and I think that carries this movie a long way. Especially, yeah. it has that sentimentality of the Christmas season. Mm. It's about you know on Christmas. I'm gonna get and a lonely the, Christmas too. And yeah, if it's you've a ever had Christmas, a lonely and I'm gonna Christmas, get, you gonna get, get the you know? uh, the tree at the last minute. All of those yeah. things are in there. And he's a history professor, and he actually says pretty clearly why history is important to him, which I yeah. love. And he's like, why don't you say it like this in class? Yeah. And he's like, I don't know. Actually. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I should. I actually am very passionate about history, and I appreciate yeah. that passion. Yeah. Um, th- there's a lot of implications that he has like a richer life than the students previously thought. So yeah, uh, a more interesting past. A lot which is probably on. true of a lot of your professors and teachers. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so I, I appreciate that element of it. It's always interesting to me when, because uh, I, I was raised by teachers. My mother was a, mm-hmm. a teacher, an elementary school teacher. My dad was, I, I forget what he taught, actually. By the time I was born, he was in administration. He was a principal, and then he was worked in, uh, like, testing. Um, but all the, like, the other kids I knew had this idea that, like, where did the... Where do the teachers go after yeah. school? Home. They go home. They have lives. <laughs> they have families. They have interests. I, it, it's mm. so... There's an old Calvin and Hobbes where he ran into his teacher at the supermarket. I thought she went to her coffin afterwards. <laughs> like, I, it's something so amusing to me. that Like, oh, well, what if we humanized our teachers? Mm. Then we'd be better people? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, not as, I'm not as stunned by that element. Yeah. But, like, regardless, yeah, it... It's wonderfully acted, mm. it's beautifully filmed, and at the end of the day, I liked it okay. Right. I didn't love it. I, I wish I loved it, but I don't. I, I just kind of like it. I, I think I liked it more than you, but uh, I, 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 this isn't. This wasn't like a top ten of the year. Yeah, that's not going to rewrite. I, th- I think, her it, list I think it's. I think it's gently sweet, and I think a gently sweet film with wonderful production design mm-hmm. and some really uh, great lead performances is certainly worth seeing. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, uh, let's play catch up with a movie that didn't yeah. come out in October. Uh, let's let's play catch up with the movie that came out last week, and it's called Night Swim. Death Pool, the pool that eats. Okay, so 
you're in a Hollywood like studio. Someone comes in and they pitch a movie. It's a glass coffee table, a plate yeah. of croissants, and a line of cocaine. <laughs> this this is how movies are made, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. One hundred percent cocaine. <laughs> um, they you, you come on it and pitch meetings. By the way, there's a fun YouTube series called Pitch Meeting. I like a lot, but like pitch meetings are you, you hear the legends of pitch meetings. The greatest pitch meeting anyone ever did was uh, James Cameron oh, yeah, for Aliens. He, I'm not sure if this is true or not. I, but, uh... I don't care. It's the coolest story ever. He walks in, and there's like a chalkboard or a dry erase board, and he writes Alien, hmm. pauses for effect, adds an S to the end, <gasps> Aliens, and then draws a line through the S so it's a dollar sign, <laughs> and then leaves. <laughs> it says nothing. <laughs> but it's More all... than one alien. But it's... Um, yeah, that's all we need. It's all that's <laughs> more that, of them, and then the we'll only, make more money. The only gimmick is there's more than one <laughs> alien this and time. It turns out he actually made a really good movie. But um, I, I so heard imagine, a rumor that yeah. when it came time to make uh, the third Alien picture, yeah. one of the original ideas was uh, mm. there's that big monster fight at the end of Aliens where she's yeah. in that big mag- turbo loader c- yeah. constructing suit. Yeah. Uh, the idea was there were going to be like twenty to fifty of those versus like a whole fleet of gigantic queen monsters. Those aren't army suits the whole no, point is those are for lifting heavy things mm-hmm. they're like no <laughs> but you know aliens you know just multiply it again I, just do it more of it one of the things i love about alien 3 is that it doesn't do the same no thing again. it turns into a dour uh, yeah. tragedy I, 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 I like that one way more than i like aliens but i, I, know I don't it's controversial i like aliens better but i actually like alien 3 a lot but anyway um you're in a, you're in a studio you're an executive and someone comes in and they just say here's the pitch hmm. haunted swimming pool and if the executive says, go on, mm-hmm. you, you have a story ready. To, uh, to, to, no, to, you to, don't. But you have a haunted swimming pool. Because <laughs> here's what I think. I honestly think this movie was greenlit, not because they had a good story. They don't. No. I think it's because I don't think we've done that one yet. We have done Haunted Car. Hmm. We've done Haunted House a million times. We've done a Haunted Lamp in that one haunted, Amityville movie. Haunted Clock in that other Amityville movie. Yeah, yeah. we've done uh, we've done all kinds of haunted objects. Play but we, somehow we movies. Yeah. Never. I don't think we've ever done a haunted swimming pool specifically. So fuck it. Let's be the first. That's cheap. <laughs> Just get a backyard with a swimming pool. We'll get a tank, so it looks mm-hmm. like they're in kind of like deeper water mm-hmm. sometimes, and well, you get that kind of like, kind of like um, almost like uh, forty-seven meters down kind of void quality. Mm-hmm. Oh God, where, where what side is up? That kind of thing. And then yeah, family moves into the house. Swimming pool is haunted. Bada bing. Profit yeah, yeah. And, and what what actor do we have under contract right now? <laughs> Turns out Wyatt Russell, yeah, uh, is is open and he's under contract. He's like, oh, I, I don't do, know if he's under does, contract does, at I, Blumhouse, but he you could get him. But, he was free that month. <laughs> he had to have been under contract. <laughs> Kerry Condon had to be under contract. Kerry Condon coming fresh off of an Oscar nomination of the Banshees of Inisherin <laughs> is doing Night Swim, and honestly, kudos kudos to her because she's trying. She, to, they're yeah. all trying. Wyatt Russell is, and by the way, I think Wyatt Russell is great. I know he's, okay. he's he's Kurt Russell's son, and he looks it, yeah, and he sounds it. In I fact, think they, he's even they, playing Kurt Russell's son on that Apple Godzilla show. No, no he's, he's, he's playing, he's playing Kurt, the younger I mean. version of Kurt he's Russell, the yeah. early version of Kurt Russell. Like, and I think I actually thought he was really really good in uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier as uh, mm. like the the oh, replacement like, Captain America. Yeah, right. Goes, right. Who, Get, goes wrong like he's really really good i think he's very talented he's great in goon 2 
<laughs> an unexpectedly great sequel to an unexpectedly great sports movie. Um, he plays uh, a. He was a third baseman for the Brewers. He was a, a baseball player, uh, and his career was cut short when uh, he was uh, diagnosed with MS. Yeah, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and so he's, you know, he's trying to take care of himself, treat himself, whatever. And they need. They move to another town, uh, and they have two kids, and. They they look at a house and the house and is like, and they're like twelve and sixteen about the, yeah the yeah they're they're teens, um, they move into this house. They, one of the reasons they get it is because they're told he needs like low impact uh, exercise and a swimming pool is a great way to do that. So great, we'll, we'll have this place with a pool. It is however a pool that he already almost drowned in, and when he did, he had a magic vision of him playing baseball again. This will be important later. Uh, first of all, uh, l- let me pause. And I'll ask our ask you and our listeners if they're mm. familiar with Friday the Thirteenth the series. Yes. Not not the Jason Voorhees movies, but the TV show that was called Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, it was a coincidence. That was not. I don't know if it was a coincidence, but it was not they, they, related. They yeah. licensed the name, but the series they came up with had nothing to do with slashers or Jason yeah. Voorhees. And it's a great '80s mm. horror series. A lot of great filmmakers worked on it. David Cronenberg did an episode yeah. or two. And, and yeah. the premise was uh, there was an antique shop mm. that had accrued, like in a Stephen King story, mm. a lot of cursed or haunted objects. Yes. And at some point. Uh, the, the the owner died, and the, a lot of the objects in this cursed antique mm. shop got sold out and made were, their way they out were, into they the world. They were liquidated yeah. by like the bank or something. And, and then, then when uh, someone inherited, somebody, it, somebody yeah. inherited, they came back in and said, "Oh crap! There's a lot of these things missing. Mm. Uh, we need to go out into the world and find them." Now, it wasn't about the investigators; it was about yeah. the objects. Yeah, the investigators so, were fun; they were okay. But, they, it was but mostly always, every episode was about someone finding yeah, a lot. The investigators object. usually came in about halfway through the episode. The first half of every episode was usually somebody finds the object. And their misadventures with it. Not all the objects granted wishes, but demanded blood sacrifice. Pretty much to more, a team. more or less. They yeah. gave you something you would be tempted by, mm. and but there was a horror element. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember there was a, a haunted camera in one episode, sure. and the guy finds a haunted camera. He films people through it, and they mm. die. Yeah. And he gets his wish, and he, his wish is to become a werewolf because he's really into werewolves. <laughs> uh, I didn't see that one. Okay. <laughs> uh, There's an early one. It was a haunted Cupid statue, and if you point the Cupid statue at someone, it'll shoot him, and you fall in love with him. Uh, they're not all good, um, but it's a fun show, and you should watch uh, it if you haven't. Night Swim follows that like it could have been done in 30 minutes because yeah. it has that same idea uh this injured baseball player wants his wants his body to heal mm. the pool is haunted it senses that it can grant these wishes but it's gonna hypnotize him and make him want to kill his family yeah, it's basically uh it, what if the the hotel from the shining was just the swimming pool in the hotel <laughs> uh and and uh, why wrestle and Kerry Condon, um, they're better actors than this. They are, they're really, really, really just down to the bone on material. Kerry Condon spends most of the movie just like looking at people as they explain things. Mm. It's and, a thankless and she, role. And she gets to say things like, I think there's something wrong with the pool. Yeah. There's something in the water. Right. Yeah. And then Wyatt Russell has to be like sort of bewitched by the pool. And there's there's my, my favorite scene in the whole movie. Well, my second favorite scene in the whole movie uh, is uh, he's been swimming in the pool for a while he goes back to his doctor and his doctor looks at the latest test results and says hey your multiple sclerosis is clearing up that doesn't happen which is not a thing that happens and she looks at him like kind of like 
what have you been doing? And he just says, we have a pool. And he's like, oh, that's cool. No one ever tried that before. That's that's great. But I'm going to tell Scientific American. Um, so, yeah, he, he's slowly getting better. Yeah. And we cut back to the other characters as they swim in the pool, have night swims, and have, like, weird ghostly visions. When yeah. they're below the water, they can see up through the surface of the water. There's people standing on the edge yeah. of the pool, and when they come up, they're gone. They do the, They play that trick a hundred times. They, they, they try to come with as many pool gags as possible. Naturally, one kid is going to play Marco Polo. Mm. At, but, oh, am I playing Marco Polo with a person or a ghost? And then they have a POV shot of behind their closed eyes, which is always funny. So we can see like through their eyelashes, which means they're cheating at Marco Polo and you have lost me. Like my interest in your character is like, oh, so they have no scruples. <laughs> they're a terrible person. I have no interest. Because they're cheating at Marco Polo. Well, the thing is, if you, if you can see through the eyelids, hmm. I can tell that's a ghost. You can't tell that's not your boyfriend. It doesn't look like your boyfriend at all. It looks like a big, creepy, goopy ghost. Anyway, they're... I appreciate a movie that sets up a premise and does as many things as possible with it. And we'll get to another one of those in the, later in this episode. Well, so, but so like, I feel like they don't do that. Well, that's the point. They try, yeah. and like, there's you can tell that they didn't because there's one thing that they set up and they never pay off. Oh, it's, is it the flamingo? There's a giant. <laughs> I feel like people have like floaties. Oh, there's an inner tube or whatever. Or there's a inflatable raft. It's a giant flamingo. It's like. Which you can get in the market. It's sure. not made up for the movie. No, no, no. Yeah. But it's it's distractingly large, and it's not a particularly colorful movie, so that's, that, that it's a bright pink makes it really pop. It's always in the pool or next to the pool. Every fucking scene after they get the pool up and running again. That flamingo should come to life and try to kill people. I've it's, seen yeah. Poltergeist. That's the rule. It's giant. It's creepy. You get like a cool, you know, ugly animatronic. Ah. Remember um, uh, Hello, Mary New Prom Night 2? Hello, Mary Lou. Hello, Prom Mar- Night two. Or, Hello Mary Lou Prom Night 2. Yeah. Uh, where she has that like creepy rocking horse that comes yeah. to life. Yeah. It's super creepy, right? It's, it's, a, it's a slam dunk and you set it up. Literally, they do nothing with it. It's yeah, such a, it's such a cheat. My other favorite scene in this movie, um, there's a character in a horror movie who isn't necessarily important to the plot. Maybe they'll come back later, but basically they're just there to uh, uh, talk about the horror. You know, set up the, the oh. terror. This movie has two of them. One, later in the movie, pure exposition dump, and it's kind of ridiculous and doesn't work. First one, greatest pool guy character in movie history. <laughs> doesn't have a name. No, he's, he's literally just bearded pool guy tech. He's credited yeah. as pool tech. They come in, it's like, oh, they're, they're, they're trying to get their pool up and running again, and they ran into some weird thing, and so they call a pool guy. And he shows up, and it's like, millions of years ago, man walked out of the water, and he's known he was not welcome back. <laughs> uh, let me get you a filter for that. Like, it's just the most absurd. Yeah, it's like they, Brad uh, Dorif and... Um, uh, what movie they played in the Exterminator and Graveyard Shift. Oh, and, right, another right, right. bad movie, but Brad Dorf uh, comes in, knocks it out of a part with a monologue, uh, and then it's, we're done with them. That, that, that's a part I'd love to play, right? like as an actor. Um, that or the funny mortician. Those are the two. Yeah. yeah uh, or the guy who says, there ain't no rule that says a dog can't play basketball. Right. Uh, <laughs> if you ever remake Air Bud and they do that without me, no, I'm pissed. The, the, premise, the premise of uh, Night Swim is, is absurd and stupid. Now, yes. absurd and stupid premises can be made into good movies. Yes. Night Swim didn't do that. No. Uh, and Night Swim made a bad movie. Yeah. Uh, and if you're going to uh, roll with a really dumb premise, mm. you either have to make it really arty. 
mm-hmm. like in Deathbed, the Bed That Eats. Like that gets really yes. abstract and strange. Yeah, that's a and there's weirdly... like a painting on the wall with a spirit trapped in it who washes the bed. And Patton yeah, Oswalt like... has a bit about that movie yeah. where he consistently gets the title wrong and it drives mm-hmm. me up the wall. But he's talking about like, oh, can you believe they made this movie? Have you seen the movie, Patton? Because yeah. they actually. They tried really hard to make that worthwhile and like mean something. Mm. It's kind of beautifully photographed. It's it's a weirdly good movie. Like it's good for what for what it's named. It's still yeah. a, it's not it's, a good movie, but it still, is still weirdly good. It's I agree. weirdly good. Yeah. I didn't say it was good. Good, but yeah. like I, I know, maybe I would actually. I, I kind of admire that movie. Yeah, like, but, that's uh, a movie with Moxie. Damn it. So if you either do it really arty or you go the schlock route and yeah. you just put as much violence and sex into the movies you Make can. Make it absurd. Which is also fine. There's an integrity to that, <coughs> making that kind of drive-in schlock. Yeah. Uh, so you'd think Night Swim. Okay, it's a swimming pool. Oh, great. We're going to have like skinny dipping scenes and it's going to open with a couple like getting digested by the pool waters or something. Yeah. Um, there's going to be at least one or two pool party scenes. Uh, there's going well, to yeah, be uh, there's going to be a scene where we actually get to see like people's flesh melting off their bones in the pool water. You at least want to like really off, make it salacious. You want to play off of that um, urban legend about you know, like your hair getting sucked yeah, in at the yeah. bottom or something. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, or you know, like, <coughs> oh, somebody standing next to the pool and like a, a CGI water tentacle reaches up and grabs them right? like in the abyss. Have None fun. of that shit. Yeah. This movie doesn't have that kind of sense of fun. No. Uh, they're, they're trying to make it legit with such a silly... Like, if they're trying to make it legit, they're not making the silly premise any less silly. No. Uh, it doesn't transcend its idiocy. So no, it's just and it's not, a and it's dumb not, January it's, horror flick. Yeah, it's so close to being like... I hate the term, but so bad it's good. Mm. Like, oh, well, I can... Or, it, it's amusing. There's moments I rather, where I was amused, but yeah, I think I, I some, prefer, some of them even felt intentional. But. I prefer the term, like, bad but amusing. Like, you recognize it's terrible, but you're still right. being entertained by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, like, it, it's, it, it can't even commit to that. It's just six of one, half a dozen of nothing. Um, so, <laughs> just six. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is totally, like, I was ready to really like this movie, and boy, did this movie not want me to like it very much, and it's really, really unfortunate. Yeah. And, and I say this as a guy who likes schlock. I'm open to the idea of a haunted swimming pool. If you yeah. make a good haunted swimming pool movie, yeah. they didn't do it. All right, well, listen, you've seen more movies than I have, so why don't right. you tell me about, um, I don't know, Tell me about Destroy All Neighbors. That seems like a good story. Okay. Uh, Destroy All Neighbors is uh, a latest Shudder original. And it is actually... Um, Alex Winter is back. Ooh. Uh, not He's not writing or directing, but he's acting in this one. Okay. And, uh, and he, it seems like he's not going to act in a movie unless he gets to wear a hell of a lot of makeup. <laughs> Maybe this is like the legacy of Freaked. Uh, he also wore like a, a, like a muscle suit. This weird muscle in, suit in Bill, in, and in Bill and Ted Face the Music. Yeah. Uh, and here he's playing a character named Vlad. Now he's not the main character, he's the neighbor. Uh-huh. And uh, he's like this vaguely Eastern European guy with like a big mustache and gigantic, like puffy face and thick arms. And fa- like he's. This is Alex Winter. They didn't just want to hire an actor who looks like that. They wanted to bury Alex Winter in this kind of makeup. Sure. Uh, Jonah Ray Rodriguez, mm-hmm. the comedian. And the host main character of Mystery Science Theater 1000. One of them 1000. Yeah. Uh, He's one of three in, uh, currently working in the Gizmoplex. Check out the Gizmoplex. It's more in the spirit of the thing than those Netflix uh, seasons were. And I like those uh, Netflix seasons, but yeah, those are wonderful episodes. Yeah. And honestly, the new crew, even with like the totally different... Because like, they changed the Tom and Crow voices, but they really changed them. Yeah, for, like, yeah. Was it Emily? What, what's her uh, name? Emily, yeah. Uh, I forget her last name. Uh, 
Uh, she's great. I actually think yeah. she's wonderful. I think she's got the tone. Uh, there's just Emily, right. there's Jonah, and there's Joel, yeah. and they each like take turns hosting yeah. the movies, I, and they have different voice actors who accompany yeah. them on the bots with each change. After so many decades of like Crow sounding one way mm. and Tom Servo mostly sounding one way, mm. I thought I would not be able to get used to them sounding completely different. Mm. Like, they're great. I love all those. Yeah, like like uh, uh, the uh, the actress who plays uh, Crow yeah. with Emily is a woman. Yeah. So uh, yeah. very Crow, different. Crow now sounds like a woman. It's yeah. like oh, but and, it's still yet, the same character. It still feels like Crow. It's yeah. still, they're doing a wonderful job yeah. over there. Anyway, uh, anyway uh, Jonah Ray, uh, his credit is Jonah Ray Rodriguez. He's going yeah. back to his original name. Um, <coughs> Excuse me. Plays uh, sort of a, a bit of a loser sad sack who's really into prog rock. And that's very vital to this movie. And he has speeches, just like Paul Giamatti talks about history, Jonah Ray talks about prog rock. Okay, so we're going way uh, back to I love you, man, for our ideas. Okay. <laughs> and he's been working on a prog rock album for three years, and he hasn't put it out yet. And okay. his girlfriend is losing patience. Right. Uh, and he's having a lot of trouble completing the album because... Is he already famous? Is this like a Chinese no. democracy kind of thing? Okay, no, no, he's, he's, just... he's just some okay. guy. All right. um, uh, Kyron Dial plays uh, his, his girlfriend, who's also okay. named Emily. Um, but he has a bunch of wacky neighbors who live in his hallway. Uh, this is a really cheap movie. They didn't build a big set. They didn't go to a real apartment. They just sort of yeah. built something that, you know, like a hallway set. Uh, there's this... Sort of uh, creepy hippie old lady. Emily Marsh is the name of the host. Emily, that's it. Yeah, um, sorry, it drove me nuts. There's a guy who lives in the building who, <laughs> who like, keeps pigs, and the pigs are constantly running mm-hmm. up and down the hallway. And then the new neighbor who moves in is Vlad, okay. who's the Alex Winter character. So this is like an apartment complex, not like a suburban street. Yeah, it's okay. like, like an apartment complex. Okay. And, uh, and Jonah Ray is having trouble completing his prog rock record because the neighbors are all noisy. Mm-hmm. And, Which, as uh, a podcaster, I get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. And yeah, this Vlad character is like grunting and always listening to weird music and he's really a cartoonish, outsized, weirdo character. Everything's super stylized in this movie. There's a lot of Dutch angles. There's a lot of, you know, they blast the set with like yellow and green lights, which is a good way to make a set look interesting when you have no money whatsoever. Uh, by the way, Dutch angles, which are sometimes called canted angles, are when you take your camera, but instead of laying it like floor level, yeah, it's like it, cocked to the side. Um, and it make, it's a good way to make the audience feel a little uncomfortable or yeah, off kilter, yeah. And this is this is going for um oh what was that bad neighbor movie with Jim Belushi? Neighbors. Uh, it was it was just called Neighbors. I think it was just called or, Neighbors. Excuse me, John Belushi, not Jim Belushi. Yeah, it was. It was John um, Belushi. I think it was just called Neighbors. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it has that kind of vibe to it where there's a lot of this cartoonish sweaty tension going on mm. and uh, we can see yeah neighbors we can see the Jonah yeah. Ray Rodriguez character getting uh, <coughs> excuse me sorry I think his name is actually William uh, oh get, that's getting, nice. getting more and more uncomfortable and trying to confront this guy finally works up the nerve uh, to confront Vlad and he goes over and Vlad is like lifting cinder blocks and drinking and listening to this weird mm. music and he's really likes pushing this guy's buttons like it has this really you know Alex Winter's putting on this really funny voice how dare you come over and talk to me and uh, they fight and Vlad falls and gets impaled and dies mm. but he doesn't die because ah, uh, neighbors uh, yeah then yeah. thanks to some weird contrivances his head also gets knocked off it gets decapitated okay and so uh, the William character is like oh what am I gonna do and so he's what he does is he looks at like to calm himself he likes to look at like old prog rock tutorials from this like faded prog rock star from the 70s and he starts telling him how to dispose of a body 
It's like, oh, thanks oh. for tuning in. Here's how to dispose of a body. You need to go to the hardware store. So are we questioning saws. our protagonist's sanity at this so, yeah, point? So, yeah, okay. he's clearly going a little insane, or this is just a fantasy universe. And so he gets all, he starts to cut up the body, and the body's still alive and talking to him this whole while. <laughs> yeah. And Alex Winter's still in the movie, and now has a severed head and severed hands. Okay. That are all kind of, like, crawling around on their own. And, in fact, later on, when he has to load the pieces of this dead body into the back of a van, it's able to activate the van and run over somebody else. Ah, so now he's got two bodies. Okay. Soon it's three. Soon it's okay. four. Things start it's, racking up. All the neighbors all start. Is he going to destroy all neighbors? Maybe he's going to destroy all neighbors. And it, you know, he tries to keep it a secret from his girlfriend. <laughs> so it's so it's not like, based on the title, I no. thought it was going to be like, all my neighbors are turned into zombies or something. I have to kill them all. No, he just keeps killing he all of his neighbors. He just keeps killing his neighbors kind of by, <coughs> somebody calls him, you're a serial, ki- serial killer. And he calls him, aha, I've got you there. I'm not a serial killer. I'm a serial manslaughterer. Because uh, each or, one is an accident. Or at the very least, it's a spree killer. I, maybe so. Because everyone's always like, oh, there's a, there's serial killers. Like, no, spree killers when you do them like all like in rapid succession. Because most slashers mm. take place over like one night. Yeah, that's a spree killing. Mm. Uh, I looked that up a, once. A, you know what? We we've, we've seen so many movies about killers and yeah. serial killers. We actually kind of know these things by yeah. osmosis. It doesn't come up um, often in conversation, mm. so I wanted to whip out that I did look that up. Once. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, so uh, yeah, and and there's a lot of like fun. Someone's thinking right now. Bibbs knows a lot about spree killing. I'm a little worried about that. Uh, as far as I know, uh, William has never engaged in a spree killing. I just want to go on record with that. (laughs) Uh, the William character ends up with uh, a lot of like interestingly mutilated corpses. And there's a lot of like fun, goopy special effects. Mm. There's not a lot of goo in movies. We're just talking about the fly too. That's a really goopy movie. Most Mm. things are CG when something's cheaper. They just don't have blood anymore. I've yeah. noticed that, like, that somebody, will, somebody will stab, and, the, like, the knife will go in, and they'll have, like, a little bit of splatter, but there's not, like, a pool of blood, or yeah. a big spray on the wall, or anything like that anymore. Yeah, and they just kind of forget the blood after well, a while. I think what happens is, because blood, like, on set, that kind of liquid, uh-huh. um, can be difficult to work with, because once it's out, it's, it's out. It's and either, sticky, it's food, it, it attracts e- flies. It either yeah. takes too long to clean up between takes, or you only get one shot at it, and it's one of those things that's just... It's easier to film without it, and they use CG now, and it almost never looks good. I'll be perfectly frank. I always think it's worth the effort to do it practical. I've never seen blood spray Mm -hmm. that looks good in CG. Yeah, it's just one of those things that's hard. They finally started making fire look okay, but fire even, looks okay. But yeah. even then, if you if you don't spend the money, it looks like shit. Yeah, like you you can make fire look good. You can make water look good. For some reason, blood because blood when you use in movies, it's not just like sort of pulling around like oh hi. It's like <laughs> it's supposed to be on stuff mm. when you use it in movies. It's especially in horror movies. It's supposed to splatter. That's why yeah. we have that word. So, yeah, it's one of those things where well, they, I, I understand I can, why, we, why we're cheaping out on it. I also wish you wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can tell the filmmakers are trying to bring, uh, the director's name Josh Forbes, uh, they're trying to bring a little bit of that lo-fi mm-hmm. glop back. So yeah. when, when uh, the William character gets sprayed in the face with blood, they actually spray the actor in the face with blood. Um, Good. When we have severed hands and severed heads, those are practical effects that mm-hmm. we have on camera. When there's a charred skeleton, which shows up later in the movie, that's nice. a puppet, and I like the puppet nice. charred skeleton. Have you ever worked with fake blood? Uh, only on stage. Oh. Okay, I, I, I shot a, a student film. 
in, in Griffith Park because I did it right. And um, yeah, we use fake blood, but they don't tell you. And it's obvious in retrospect. Bees love that shit. It's it's it's, it's food. Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's like, like corn syrup. But like yeah, immediately, yeah. like you think flies, flies make sense. No, bees are like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> and now, now all of a sudden, we're just everything we have, all of our equipment is covered in bees. Which oh, is yeah. an interesting approach. I, I got some stage blood uh, when I was working on a play way back in high school. Mm. And uh, what I, I didn't know at the time was that, you know, you're supposed to put it in your mouth. If you're going to play a vampire, you can like spit, yeah. put it in your mouth and it's non toxic. You, yeah, you can let it drill down your chin. Yeah, you can even something. swallow it and it's okay. Yeah, it's, just, it's um, mostly corn syrup. Yeah. Uh, what I didn't know is that they mm. bother to flavor it. You can oh. get flavored blood, and the blood we had was minty. It was, it was very, f- very refreshing, and like people are like burping it on their teeth, it's like mm, mm, fresh breath. Um, and of course, their mouths are all bloody, and we're in high school, so we thought that was hilarious. We, we mixed it ourselves because I wanted to make sure I got the color just right. Oh, okay. uh, it was that was fun actually. It was a good time. Um, uh, and I bring all this up because that's kind of the ethos that the filmmakers are going for. They want a low budget splatter flick, mm. and they want a lot of like fun makeup effects, which I think is why they put Alex Winter in that sort of sure. Vlad um, costume. Alex Winter has another minor role later in the movie where he's out of makeup, so you actually get to see his face. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, the problem is they're butting really hard up against their budget. Mm-hmm. They're trying to make this really wild, uh, high-energy, uh, uh, chaotic splatter flick, and they clearly don't have quite enough money to pull it off. Mm. So they're not able to sort of take the time and set up some really interesting camera angles. A lot of the, the setups are really kind of flat. Uh, the editing isn't really quick. The sense of chaos they're going for isn't quite there. And what you're getting instead is uh, more a story of these people on a set having a good time. Well, you're, that not getting, be fun too. you're not getting wrapped up in the story so much. I think that's one of the reasons yeah. why we connect to so many like low, low-budget horror movies. Yeah. Where sometimes they're good enough we get into the story, but... It, it always feels like we're watching a documentary about making the movie. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. where it's like, okay, it's like if you just pulled slightly to the left so I could see the camera filming it, yeah. I'm getting that same feeling because I'm just aware yeah. of the filmmaking because it's so cheap. I, I feel like there are a lot of cheap movies from the, from the past, like in the 35 millimeter mm-hmm. era, that still looked kind of like real movies. They yeah. actually had to light things kind of interestingly. They only had so much film stock, so they had to be really careful. Yeah. And I feel like we've lost something with that in the digital horror low budget horror filmmaking world where yeah. they can just sort of shoot and shoot and things feel actually like a lot sloppier and more casual mm-hmm. not just in the performances but in the filmmaking itself yeah. and less, less less care is going and, into it and also the tech is so different yeah now yeah. now it used to be film stock was film stock mm. now it's digital cameras are not digital cameras cheap ones look very different from expensive ones yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, so w- what i'm getting is they're trying to make something that would have been really wild and chaotic like 20 years ago, yeah. but now feels like a weekend of messing around. And I, yeah, I'm sure they spent months and months working on it and mm. working on these expensive makeup effects. But that's how it comes across. But that's how it comes across. Okay. Even though they, we have Vlad's like disembodied torso and his guts are reaching out from underneath his stomach and mm. I'm like grabbing things sort of like in Dead Alive. But it looks so much better in Dead Alive yeah. because they actually bothered to make like goopier gloppier things and shoot that thing on film yeah um it doesn't have that peter jackson vibe to it unfortunately but it's not Uh, bad it's it's not bad okay it's but i want something really weird and and crazy Mm. and i'm getting something that's just sort of affable yeah and that's a little disappointing well well speaking about covered in bees uh tell me about bees yes there's a new film called the beekeeper (laughs) do you know uh honey is flammable i did did you know that line isn't in the movie 
It's not? <laughs> no! One of the one of the things in the trailer is like, did you know honey is flammable? And then it like shows like Jason Statham throwing honey at someone, and then they explode. No. <laughs> That's not in the movie. He explodes a lot of people. And he does, there's one scene where someone's got like a minigun, like mounted on the back of their van like not even a military vehicle it's just like their car oh, and he's the argo yeah and then and then in order to get out of the situation where you're, he's up against a gun that fires like literally 1000 bullets a minute he throws a jar of honey at them and it hits them on the head and they fall over you know what Honey is pretty pretty dense. It's, it's, is, it's have, 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 have you ever picked up a gigantic work. jar of honey like in a health food store or something? I'm, I'm not saying that wouldn't work. What I'm saying is, remember that scene in Terminator 2 where Arnold Schwarzenegger had that minigun and he was like shooting all the cop cars? Oh yeah. If the cops had been armed with honey, they would have been safe. They would have been fine. Every, well, none of the cops died miraculously in that. I would like, I would love to see something random like that in yeah. a big like. It's about the you know the guy with the minigun is taking yeah. on all the cops and all of a sudden gets hit like taken out by a jar of honey. Yeah, and they just sort of are just like was I hit by honey? What happened? <laughs> oh well, there was another movie going on over here about a beekeeper that <laughs> you just happened to infiltrate. Yeah. Uh, the beekeeper is a new film from David Ayer, who uh, you know he's done like a lot of like really heavy movies like Fury he or loves, Harsh Times. He loves grit. He really does. He, he wrote films like Training Day. He yeah. did a pass on the Fast and the Furious. Yeah, he did. Uh, he, he did a, a movie. I, I think is a little underrated called Sabotage, which is like. Mm-hmm. What if Training Day, but Agatha Christie, which is a weird pitch, and there's like, and Maria Linos plays like this badass sniper who's like riding in the she's so she's such a like a short person she could like fit inside the trunk of a car so they like throw her in the trunk of a car and she's like sniping as they're like driving in the middle of a shootout. This is a murder mystery. <laughs> I kind of love that movie, but. This is his least gritty movie ever. Like, he really is yeah, well, hiding I, in I know, this uh, material. And it works for this movie. He, um, he also, uh, rather infamously, did Suicide Squad, which is yeah. a big superhero flick and mm-hmm. super villain flick, I suppose. And that one famously was taken away from him, re-edited. Yeah. A lot of scenes were reshot without his presence. No, no, uh, no, no, he said he reshot him. He didn't want no. to, but he said that was the that was the gig. Oh, and he, I, did, I, he did his job. I, I heard that there was another director as well that was also shooting other scenes. Um, according to something I literally just saw him post on the thing, he said oh, they, they, right. when they asked for reshoots, that was my job. I didn't want to do it, but I right. I, I, I was a good soldier. I did what I was told yeah. to do. Um, but yeah, he, he tries to do he tries to bring a lot of grit and misery to his movies, which is weird to see him on something like The Beekeeper, which is January schlock. Yeah, and it's fun January schlock too. Um, so here's 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 the plot. Jason Statham. Okay, what does he do? That's it. That's the all you just <laughs> The plot of the movie is Jason Statham. I kind of know what movie is. Now, here, here's here's what we've thrown on top of Jason Statham to try to make this distinct from other Jason Stathams. Um, he's a beekeeper. Literally. He keeps bees. And he's... he's I want to keep bees. I want to keep them so they won't get away. Um... He's a beekeeper. He's renting like some barn space from uh, uh, a retired teacher, uh, played by Felicia Rashad, and they're, they're friends. He's like one of the only people he's ever really liked them. Uh, and at the beginning of the movie, she's just doing stuff on her computer, and she gets one of those pop-up ads that says, "Did you, your computer is full of viruses? Call this phone number now." 
And she gets suckered in by that and she calls the phone number and we cut to, it's like the movie Boiler Room. Like a whole bunch of like really intense people with like cool things playing on all the walls and they're all just like yelling at each other, here's how we're going to scam her, yeah! They steal all her money. They steal all the money from uh, a charity she was uh, helping to run and she's destitute, she's destroyed the lives of children, she's distraught and the next time we see her, she's taking her own life. Oh, jeez. Yeah, really, really. It, it's bad. It's tragic. It's it's terrible. And um, her daughter is an FBI agent. She shows up, and Jason Statham had just discovered the body, so she thinks he did it. She quickly finds out he didn't, and realizes that she was the victim of these scammers, and it led to a horrible tragedy on top of that horrible tragedy. Uh so she's trying to solve the crime from the FBI perspective, and he's like, she's like, these guys are too high tech. We don't have, we can't find leads. They like, you know, they they move around a lot. We we can never really catch these guys. Jason Statham makes a phone call and finds them in the afternoon. Uh, he drives over there because fortunately they're within driving distance. Uh, and he just has a couple of tanks of gasoline, and he just walks in. And says, anyone who doesn't want to be burned alive should leave now. And he just starts pouring it all over the computers. <laughs> and he blows up the building. And it's really great. And it turns out that that company was uh, being run by a douchey tech pro played by Josh Hutcherson. Okay. And he has some connections. His like head of security is an ex-head of the, uh, ex-head of the CIA played by Jeremy Irons. Who... It, this is a paycheck for Jeremy Irons, but he earns it. He's doing a good job. They send some goons oh, to like... And he, he can sleepwalk through stuff. Oh, he can sleepwalk through a movie. I've, I've seen Jeremy Irons not commit before. Yeah. Um, they track down Jason Statham. They shoot his bees. <laughs> they shoot them, which is just an amazing so, image. Like, just like, just yeah. they go to the apiary and just start like just start, blasting yeah, the hives. Yeah, blasting away. And then uh, they go hey, into hey, like his... You know, you know what you don't want to do to a beehive? <laughs> like... <laughs> Like just piss off disturb it in any way? Yeah. yeah. Somehow we missed the part where they're attacked by bees. I don't know why we, we skipped that. Um, he like strangles them, slices off their fingers. Uh, one of the, the tech bro guys gets away, and um, he ends up like tying him to a truck and sending the truck flying off a bridge. <sighs> it's Jason Statham versus... Every scammer who bothers you every day. Every pop-up ad, Jason Statham's going to kill those right, guys. I'm, I'm, Everyone who calls your phone and says, Hey, we're here from American Loan Services, and we think you know, you've know, you got too much debt, and we can like help you out with that. You just need your credit card number. Jason Statham's going to kill them. I love it. Honestly, it, there's a certain catharsis here that is appreciated, because people who do fall for that get screwed over so bad. Yeah. And some people get really judgy about it. You don't blame the victim here, okay? Like, people are in tough situations and they can get scammed. It happens. Um, it turns out that Jason Statham uh, isn't just a beekeeper. He was... Oh, no. He was a government <laughs> assassin... Oh, no. ...whose code name was the beekeeper. So he and, and when he so retired, he decided to just do that. He had no idea... So he, so he became a beekeeper. Right? That would be like if, 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 like, you know, like in Metal Gear Solid, you play like this assassin named Solid Snake. Imagine he retired and became a herpetologist. Like, you don't have to, do, you can do your own thing. You don't have Solid, to let that dictate. Solid Snake. Solid Snake. Yeah. 
The names in they, those they games just, are they amazing. They just call it like boner penis. And the well, back in the NES days, you had to get that gold seal. You couldn't call it boner <laughs> penis. So anyway, let's play boner penis, the video game, right? Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of those actually. Oh jeez. Um. Anyway. Uh, Jason Statham uh, is going to keep following this thing. He's going to follow the money all the way up the ladder. It goes up really high. It is fucking ridiculous. There's all these, like, bee puns. Oh, good. Like, throughout well, you the know whole what? thing. Good. Like, someone's Take like... Take advantage. Yeah, someone says, to be or not to be. Yes. All right. Thank okay. you for all of this. This is wonderful. There, see, this is what yeah. Night Swim needed. Was yeah. that kind of corniness. Embrace the corniness. And, and honestly... I love me some Jason Statham. Okay. I think when Jason Statham's particular blend of solo action movie, not when he does like a Fast and the Furious movie, he's good in those. I enjoy him in those, don't get me wrong, but those aren't Jason Statham movies. Those are Fast and the Furious movies in which they acquired Jason Statham. When he does a Guy Ritchie movie, those are Guy Ritchie movies hmm. in which he is cast. The Jason Statham mold is... Jason Statham is a badass, and then someone fucks with him, and you shouldn't have. And yeah. now he will destroy you. That's the Transporter movies, that's the Crank movies. <clears throat> that's that's Prime Statham right there. Transporter 1, 2, and Crank 1. Those are, I know people like Crank 2, it drives me up the wall. Those for me are like the things that, the movies that make Jason Statham like his own action hero. Like different, separate from Seagal or Norris or Schwarzenegger. The beekeeper feels like classic Statham. It really does. It's nonsense. It is absolutely ludicrous, laugh out loud. And it it's trying to do that, and it succeeds. I had a ton of fun with this movie. I All genuinely right. recommend this movie. <laughs> okay. It is a January movie, mm -hmm. and it is a good one. All right. He's not going to win any Oscars. But it is the Jason Statham gets pissed off and, and fights people with B-stuff movie you've always wanted. So um, so that yeah. what you're saying is, unlike Night Swim, it does schlock correctly. Quite well. Quite well. It could, right. could it have done better? Yeah, maybe. But like it does a lot. And I think it really captures the right tone. I think David Ayer knows to get out of Jason Statham's way. He's not, like, imposing his usual style on this. He's t doing a Statham movie. Um, which means basically anyone could have done it, but whatever. You, you get your paycheck. That's fine. Do, do your, you, hope you had fun. But, like, it's it's a hoot. It's absolutely mm. nonsense. And Jeremy Irons gets to say things like, if a beekeeper says you're gonna die, you're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I can't do Jeremy Irons, oh, but you, you, you get the gist of it. Anyway, it's wonderful. Um... All right, tell me about uh, tell me about the book of Clarence. Uh, oh, this is an interesting one. Uh, okay. The book of Clarence is the latest uh, film from James Samuel, who you might know from The Harder They Fall, which was one of my favorite movies of the yeah, year. Yeah, it was really, really really good. Fantastic. And what I think James James Samuel uh, took some real life like Wild West gunfighters, like actual mm. legendary figures, and told a completely fictional story with them. Yeah, so, and, and specifically uh, the, 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 the real-life characters who are people of color who have mm. largely been ignored yeah, by I, other movies. The, the whole Hollywood Western tradition is pretty much ignored non-white people for about a been, century. It's been really whitewashed. Yeah. And James Samuel, who's a you know, black man from Britain, uh, wanted to kind of look... He was interrogating that about yeah. uh, race in genre. How... 
westerns had been completely whitewashed. So yeah. he, uh, <laughs> which he literally does in one scene of the movie. Yes, There's one scene where like, oh, we can't go to that town. That's a white town. We cut to that town. All the buildings are painted white. <laughs> like it's that kind of movie. It's a great movie. Yeah, um, Regina Regina uh, King should have been nominated for an Oscar for that. Yeah, she was really she's really fantastic good. in that. Just movie. everybody's good. Yeah, really movie. good. Film. Um, yeah. A good complicated story, fun yeah. action. It's just really yeah. fantastic a soundtrack. Like you wouldn't believe. Uh, it's so good. But yeah, so rather than tell the white story, he told uh, a film which was mostly an all black cast. Yeah, just cast all black actors. Uh, with the Book of Clarence, he's doing the same thing with the biblical epic. Nice. Uh, there are plenty of films about ancient Rome and about Jesus uh, and about the Twelve Apostles uh, that are all all-star white actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority. F- first of all, it's the Middle East. Yeah. <laughs> you know, white act. You know, Charlton Heston playing Moses. That kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, for some reason, the screening I went to had an intro from James Samuel, and he said that he actually really likes biblical epics, hmm. but uh, clearly he feels that they were uh, <laughs> inappropriately white. Yeah. So now he's telling a biblical epic, and again, all black cast. The only white actors are Roman characters. <clears throat> That's. Uh, Clarence, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is the twin brother of the Apostle Thomas. Okay. Uh, who is also played by Lakeith Stanfield. Mm-hmm. All of the uh, all the apostles are black and Jesus is black. Great. Good. <laughs> I like that. I like that casting. Um, and the Clarence character, this is a really complex, ambitious movie that has a lot of big ideas that don't really cohere very well. So this uh, is a very stumbly kind of a movie. So okay. the Clarence character is... Uh, Kind of hates that uh, his twin brother ran off when his mother, played by Marianne Jean Baptiste, was really sick once, mm. and he ran off so he could go hang around with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And the way uh, Jesus and the apostles are depicted in this movie are kind of like local celebrities. Yeah, like they have clout, and that's all the Clarence character can see is that they have clout. They're kind of celebrities. Mm-hmm. He's a cool little. Kids. He's a little bit of like a a local criminal. He deals. I forgot what they call it, but he's essentially dealing weed. Uh-huh. Uh, and he owes a lot of money to a local criminal. And he figured... Do you remember that David Cross's bit about that? Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, Jesus turns water into wine. Hey, mm-hmm. Jesus, we've got this sage. That's <laughs> <laughs> cute. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is clearly coming at, you know, biblical lore from like a Life of Brian angle. Yeah, and yeah, and there's, yeah. A lot of broad, yeah. there's a lot of broad satirical comedy in this movie as well. Uh, Clarence owes a lot of money to local uh, local criminal... He needs. He initially tries to win it in a chariot race with Mary Magdalene, who's like this badass charioteer in this movie. Yeah, I'm uh, starting to regret missing this. <laughs> this sounds very much on my plays, alley. Uh, Tayana Taylor plays Mary Magdalene oh, in this Rick movie, uh, and uh, also he has the hots for the criminal's sister. Mm. Uh, Anna Diop plays that character. Oh wow! Uh, yeah. The character's named Verinia. Uh, he. That's uh, a hell of a cast. Oh, oh gosh, and it gets better. Oh my God. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of really wonderful yeah. people in this movie because um, Barabbas is in this movie as well. Oh well, yeah, and he's played by Omar Sy. Ah, uh, that's fun. And the way they we meet uh, Barabbas is he's uh, he has to he wants to get become the thirteenth apostle at first. He feels okay. like he can make some money if he has the clout that being an apostle would grant him. Yeah. He is an outwardly spoken atheist, by the way. He says openly <laughs> multiple times throughout the movie, "There's no God, and that knowledge is better than belief." Like he says this openly, mm. 
but he wants to fall in with Jesus. He doesn't believe Jesus is divine. He believes it's all a scam. Yeah. But he figures he can make some money this way. And they say, you have to prove you're good. Free some slaves. There's like a local slave market and they're forced to be uh, gladiators. Mm. Go there. He goes to the gladiator school. It's run by Babs Olusanmakun, who is on Star Trek Strange New Worlds. He plays Dr. Umbenga. Oh, cool. Uh, he's really cool in this movie. He's just a great actor. He is I love a great actor. Guy. Yeah, that guy's cool. And he, he, they say, hey, you can if, if you can beat my champion, you can free the champion. And that's Barabbas. And that's Omar Sy. And then there's this action sequence. Like a legit, straight up badass action sequence of these guys fighting. Nice. Uh, and he frees Barabbas. Barabbas is actually very faithful, even though he, uh, Clarence is not. And he, he says to the apostles, well, I freed one. That's not good enough for the apostles. You don't get to fall in with Jesus. Christ hasn't shown up yet, by the way. He will later on. Uh, let me look up the actor who plays Jesus Christ. Um, hmm. Nicholas Pinnock is his name. I don't know. Um, uh, he was, um, what was Nicholas Pinnock? I've seen him around. Um, hmm in like supporting roles and stuff. Sure, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'll look. Uh, okay. I'll look. Uh, but then uh, Clarence decides getting this scam isn't really working for me. I have a better idea. I'm just going to become the Messiah. Okay. I'm going to fake being a Messiah. And he starts giving uh, speeches about how knowledge is better than belief, but also I'm the Messiah and I'm going to keep all your money. And I'm <clears throat> being very transparent about that. He does some noble things with the money. He does some ignoble things with the money. What I love about uh, the book of Clarence is it's never, it never puts Clarence himself in any one kind of light. Mm. It allows him to be flawed and and less scoundrel, but also really intelligent and um, and and like savvy, like it, in a really respectable kind of a way, mm -hmm. but also just sort of like really human and dealing with a lot of really uh, complex emotions all in this very heightened universe. This film is sprawling in all directions. Yeah. Um, and I'm not really sure if there's any one point it's trying to make. It's trying to make several points at once as it goes along its way. Um, there's some cameos that, uh, from actors you might recognize. James McAvoy oh. uh, plays Pontius Pilate. Okay, that works. And... You might not recognize him at first, but Benedict Cumberbatch is also in this movie in a, a sort of minor supporting role that becomes bigger later on in the movie. Okay. And uh, they kind of riff on how, uh, a little bit throughout the movie, how Jesus Christ has rather infamously been painted in a lot of holy art as a white man. Yeah. There's a, I forgot who did the actual painting. I used to know. But there's a really famous uh, image of Jesus Christ. Okay. No, it's not Da Vinci. Okay. It's it's you, you see it in like a lot of Protestant churches. Yeah. Of um, I think it was painted in the 1950s. Mm. Of Jesus Christ, white man with a beard, long flowing hair, just sort of like looking up in yeah. in, in sort of the middle distance. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, you, people probably know which painting I'm talking yeah. about, and that has become the popular image of what Jesus Christ looks like. Well, popular amongst this, some. <laughs> popular in certain churches. Yeah, I, I guess I should say. Um, I think that's just sort of in terms of no real way to put it uh, other than in popular culture, the yeah. way Christ has been sort of seen and depicted. Right. And, and I think, and they riff on that. Well, Cause he's he a, a lot of shorthand. Mm. Cause oftentimes, you know, there aren't a lot of movies about Jesus specifically. They're out there. Oh, there's a lot of movies where mm. you want to have a cameo from Jesus or something. And he just sort of, when that happens, you just try to look like stereo. Mm. It's like Barbie, stereotypical Jesus. Yeah, you know, just the easy, the one that the one that reads that, immediately the, is the Jesus. The stereotype comes from I think that one particular painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus just saying. Yeah. And yeah, then this movie 
kind of brings that up that you know historically speaking Christ is made to look a certain way. Um, David Oyelowo plays John the Baptist in one ah. scene. Uh, Clarence goes as, "Hey, baptize me, make me holy." It's like you don't believe in this stuff. I know you don't. And he ends up like slapping him across the face. Like, like it's like a mean John the Baptist. Hmm. So this is like irreverent comedy, religious treatise genre deconstruction mm. and kind of like action picture all rolled into this one sloppy mess. It is fascinating. <laughs> I can't say if it's great or not, but I, I, I've said this plenty of times before. I'm happier when a film is sloppy in service of big ideas yeah. than clean in service of something lesser. Yeah. You, you, everything you just said makes me really mm. want to see it. Okay. So I'm so definitely it's, going it's, to. It's, it's not a perfect movie. It's, I can't even tell you if it's a great movie, but golly, it's a fascinating movie. And mm. I, I really liked watching it, even if it, even if it's not great. Yeah. Maybe it is. Right. I'm still figuring it out. Awesome. Well, um, that's really exciting. Hmm. Um, let's talk about a, a film that has the audacity to declare that it's good. Uh-huh. Talk about good grief. Tell me about good grief. Oh, oh, well, uh, good grief is f- the directorial debut of Dan Levy, hmm. the act, the actor and comedian Dan Levy. Yeah. He, he wrote and directed this film, and it is about grieving. It's it's kind of funny. I went on KCRW last week to review this and all of us strangers, and uh-huh. both of them are about queer men. Re- like sort of uh, grieving the loss of their parents. Yeah. Because that's a big part of this movie. Um, Dan Levy plays a book illustrator. His husband, who's played by Luke Evans, is the author of this hot uh, book property. It's sort of like a Hunger Games type books that are being made into movies. Mm. And uh, they're both really, really successful. And at the beginning of the movie, he gets into a car and he gets into a car crash immediately and he dies. And now Dan Levy has to mourn the loss of his husband while going through uh, some things. He finds a letter from his husband where he is essentially being dumped. He's getting Uh, dumped that night. So uh, not only is he dead, but he realized that he was going, he was going to be left behind. I'm sad and rejected. So yeah, so he's rejected and he has to, and so he takes it upon himself to go to France where his husband's boyfriend was Uh, and sort of confront him just as a way of, so Part it's like a really process. sad French kiss. Pretty much. <laughs> and a lot of it is just about the grieving process, how he goes through this, how he's barely holding together. And they bring up a lot that a lot of the grief that he's feeling now is also unprocessed grief from when his parent, when his mother died like many years before. So he's kind of doing this double grieving and he brings along on his, uh, on his journey, his best friends, they're played by Ruth Nega, mm. who is excellent oh, she's in great everything. In everything. Yeah, and uh, Himesh Patel, Oh, okay. Uh, who's who's really good in this movie. Yeah. Uh, this movie is speech after speech after speech of what it is to grieve and how sad you feel. And it's just a fucking bummer after a while. Uh-huh. Like, we're not really growing to anything through these speeches. It's just uh, the characters kind of talking about their feelings and how they're feeling pain. And... You you need one of those. You don't need eight of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need like two or three catharses along the way. You don't need like catharsis after catharsis. Yeah. Uh, I get the sense that Dan Levy is still trying to figure out like story and flow and pacing when it comes to filmmaking. Right. What he has in spades, however, and I love this about Good Grief, is 
uh, how he works with his actors mm-hmm. because he's an actor. It makes sense. Uh, he, all the scenes where the characters just sort of naturally, the ones that aren't about grieving, the scenes where the characters sort of meet and have conversations. And there's a couple incidental scenes. They're having a drink in a bar. They're talking about relationships the next morning. Uh, the characters are all really natural. The conversations flow really well. He lets the camera sort of float around them. He lets the acting dictate the scene. All of that is really, really good. So I feel like he's developed a certain kind of naturalistic filmmaking that I wish he would have brought to the actual story of the movie as well. Right. Because um, you don't want you don't want a whole movie that's just mm-hmm. nothing but a series of monologues, like some kind of manifesto. Yeah. Like you which, would hate a movie called Manifesto. I really love a movie called Manifest. I know you do. (laughs) It's literally a movie that's just a bunch of speeches, and you love that one. But for some reason, when Dan Levy does it, bullshit. (laughs) Well, because he's telling a a fictional story. Manifesto is like an art piece where they're actually reading out of ancient pieces of literature, and Kate Blanchett plays every single character, men and women. I love Manifesto. I don't know why people didn't talk about Manifesto. It's, it's I like really, it really ambitious and great, and nobody talked about it at all. Like I was the only one who really fell in love with this movie. I, I only brought it up because I'm gonna. I'm now the only person in history who has brought up Manifesto as a gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only person who's brought up Manifesto. Period. Nobody yeah. talks about that. Film. Yeah. Look up Manifesto. Watch it. I think it's really great. Yeah. Uh, it's a Whitney film. It is. That's a good I, thing. If you like it. I mean, if a, a bunch of filmmakers are all constantly making Whitney films, surely there's a lot of them out there. And yeah, and uh, I want who, who share to... my sensibilities yeah. or making movies that I respond I'm, to. Again, it's not an insult. It's mm. telling people who like the kind of movies you like. Mm. And I know some of them mm. listen to the show because, <laughs> well, this is the show to listen to. Yeah. If that's the case, there you go. Yeah. See that movie. If you're telling a story of grief, mm-hmm. you know, tell. It's important that you stick to at least a little bit to something like a story and have some kind of like development. And I feel like Dan Levy kind of fell down in that uh, okay. that respect a little bit. Uh, in terms of character, though, in terms of interactions, in terms of you know getting the great supporting cast and dealing with these sort of interesting concepts, that party did right. Um, All right. Okay. Good. That, well, that's that's good grief. It's on. It's a Netflix film, so you can kind of you can absorb it passively. <laughs> Can that, be, can that be Netflix's new slogan? <laughs> Absorb Netflix. it passively. Absorb it passively. I did a, a write-up recently on the Flixies, which nobody remembers. Mm. It was a, Netflix was trying to do film awards, and this was way back in 2013. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah and, uh, and their categories were things like uh, tantrum tamers, something you throw on for your kids, uh, you know, the, the best romance TV series that you're going to binge this week. Uh, and this was back before they were doing like a lot of original programming. Yeah. And Netflix was literally what you put on in while you're having sex with your date. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's where, where the era when Netflix and chill came into being. Mm. And it's kind of fascinating to look back at that era and realize, wait, Netflix really was just this passive archive mm. of, chewing gum television like it wasn't it wasn't yet a studio or a network do you remember the one episode of the simpsons i forget what was going on where someone won a cable ace award mm-hmm. and the next award was and the award for best new series goes to old starsky and hutch reruns <laughs> <laughs> that's what netflix was yeah yeah that's why suits is big now like it, it, it was rediscovered Weird, but okay i'm glad it happens yeah. i want things to be able to rediscover that's good um Anyway, okay, so we got one more thing left. and it, 
Did you talk about this last week? This was on your best films of the year, wasn't uh, it? Well, I talked about the zone of interest. That was on my best films of the but, year, but and not I feel Occupied like City. and Occupied City was something I said would make a really good double feature with it. Ah, so I didn't okay. really give it a proper review. I want to give it okay. a, a bit of a proper. I was review. having trouble remembering if it made your yeah. list or not, but I remember talking about it. Okay, yeah. tell me about Occupied City. Uh, Occupied City is the latest film from Steve McQueen, a wonderful filmmaker. Yeah. Um, I was impressed with his films like Twelve Years a Slave or Hunger or Shame. Um, and then he made small acts, and now he yeah. He, That's one of the uh, great now, cinematic now I'm following accomplishments him forever. Of the last yeah, because the, the, the yeah. small acts movies are all excellent. Um, but now he's made a documentary film. This was a project he was working on with his wife for a long time, where they were going through uh, the city of Amsterdam mm. and just kind of exploring building by building and looking for stories of what was going on in Amsterdam during Nazi occupation during mm. the, during World War Two. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of the uh, stories and a lot of the narrations were written by Steve McQueen's wife, and they, um, uh, let me look up her name, because she's an artist in her own right. Okay. Um, you can do it, I believe in you. Uh, Bianca Stigter is her name. Okay. Uh, yeah, and she she kind of wrote this uh, photo book, Atlas of an Occupied City, Amsterdam, 1940-1945, and this is a movie kind of based on that. And uh, they hired a narrator to read um, from the book. And the camera just sort of floats around Amsterdam and looks at what it looks like in 2022 when they filmed. And the narrator says, uh, just sort of describes for four and a half hours Hmm. what happened in each one of these locations. Here's where somebody was slaughtered. Here's where uh, a family of Jews were hiding out from the Nazi occupiers. Mm -hmm. Here's where Nazis found somebody. Here's where... Here's where, like, somebody starved to death and we have record of it. And here's, like, rules that uh, Jewish people who were hiding out needed to follow when they were hiding out with, like, Gentile people. Mm. It's like, you're going to stay in this back room. Don't talk to them. Don't ever... You have to stay, like, really, really hidden. All of these details. Mm. Uh, and something that c- comes up uh, time and time again is here's here's a building another building used to be here and this is what happened to the building that used to be here. And then they just say demolished Mm -hmm. and how the city has been kind of rewritten and sanitized. And this is why I compared it to zone of interest because they're all cleanliness and being sanitized is a big theme of that movie. Yeah. And I, and you can see sort of how here's a location in Amsterdam where these really horrible things happened. And there's just like some teenagers there now and they're playing on their phones. Yeah. Like kind of ignorant as to what happened historically. It's really fascinating. Yeah. That's it premise yeah, yeah I, I feel like it's a plaque that you might see on the side of a, a historic building when you're walking through a city like it was on this spot that blank happened right and this is just plaque after plaque going a, yeah. a, all through the city of amsterdam for four and a half hours there's even a 15 minute intermission uh in in its theatrical release the connection between what happened during world war ii and what happened in the modern day is a little tenuous and you can see that Sorry. Steve McQueen is trying to connect uh, the fascism of the 40s to some things that are happening now. Like there's some things that were happening in the Dutch government today that feel vaguely controlling, especially as they related to like lockdowns and COVID. Mm-hmm. And we saw some protests and there were some really creepy scenes of uh, police watching protests and cameras watching protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, while the narrator is talking about Nazi occupation, mm. um, there's a parallel there, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Steve McQueen is, you know, is being not very subtle in certain of these moments. For the most part, though, he's just sort of delving into uh, 
urban landscape and its inability to remember. And uh, we live in Los Angeles, so oh, yeah. we know that. Shit. Oh, we we uh, can't keep a building up for more than twenty years. No, like, no, no. like it's, the it's, most it's... iconic buildings in Los Angeles mm. history bulldozed gone yeah, yeah. like nonsense it's uh, bullshit she, Eddie Izzard has a bit in one of her routines mm. where, where she talks about how um, you tear down your history yeah we, we tear our history like he uh, uh, we, we, we we tear down our history man um, we restored this uh, building uh, to the way it right. looked over 50 he, 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 years it's ago it's like he, he restored this to how it looked over 50 years ago and, and Eddie's like no surely not no no one was alive <laughs> then and she's like, I, I come from from Europe, where the history comes from. Castles like, everywhere, just driving. Yeah. yeah, we live here in in mm. Los Angeles. We just tear it down. Yeah, it's, uh, Am- I, Amsterdam. I up the wall. Amsterdam. It. They just tore it down. Yeah, uh, all of this this horror and shame, and you know, for one thing, do we stay and stare at the horror all day? Mm. Do we? You know, how how do we move on? And how yeah. is history going to judge that? And I feel like. That's what Steve McQueen is trying to get at here. He's trying to sort of bridge that that gap. Yeah, um, it is fascinating. Sounds it's very long. You yeah. have to you have to stay with it for a while, and I like that it's so thorough. Mm. Um, you can't do a whole city in two hours, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't even do a, to a whole city in four and a half hours. This could have been a, like a twenty-four hour documentary series after a while. Yeah, maybe it'll be at a museum somewhere. Yeah. Like a full... and it and it feels like a museum piece. Yeah. But um, but I like movies that feel. Awesome. So yeah, I liked Occupied City, and I'm thank you for letting me talk about it. No worries. Um, I want people to see it. So, um, all right, that's it for critical claim. Let's uh, critically acclaim. Critic acclaim. Yeah, it's not, it's not our YouTube. It's not our YouTube. It's not. Our, wow. <laughs> We're not doing day. this early, like late at night as we usually we do. We usually record this podcast like eleven o'clock midnight. It is currently two twelve p.m. on an afternoon, which is where two twelve p.m. usually falls, and. I'm as out of it as ever. I don't know. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just getting old. But in any case, that is it for Critically Acclaimed. Let's talk about uh, our reviewer movies on the Critically Acclaimed scale. Uh, the Critically Acclaimed scale goes from C- to C+. No, I will not be giving the beekeeper a B. Uh, tempting though it may be. Uh, C- is below average. Those are movies we don't recommend. Uh, C is an average. Those are movies that have you know, positive negative qualities or just kind of mediocre. Uh, and uh, C plus is a movie we genuinely recommend. We think it's a, a good movie, maybe even a great one. Uh, Whitney, on that note, uh, yeah, Occupied City, Occupied City, B plus, De- yeah, B plus, B plus, C plus, D plus. What are we doing here? C plus. What podcast is this? Uh, C plus. <laughs> oh my god, I'm losing. If it, it gets now. a B plus, it should have been your number one movie of the year. I'm going to tell no. you that right now. Okay, uh, B plus, C plus, C plus. <laughs> Just brain farting everywhere today. It's um, two in the afternoon. Two in the afternoon. Maybe, we maybe like we're just this? out of our elements. Like maybe. we're used to being fatigued, and we're sharper when we're tired. Maybe. Uh, it's a C plus. Definitely C occupied. C. It is quite good. Okay. A uh, good grief. Good grief is a C. It's not a wash. Right. I think. I think it, there's a lot it doesn't do well, but I think when it does do well, it does quite well. Okay. The book of Clarence. Uh, I'm going to give it a C plus. Okay. Uh, even though it's it's sloppy and kind of unfocused, but fascinating and interesting and ambitious and i love all of that awesome uh the beekeeper i'm giving it a c plus it gives right. you everything you want from a jason statham movie you said yeah. all the bees i think that's what threw me yeah i know i, I, I mean, all, all that, the beekeeper jokes no it, it's it's a c plus it's it's very entertaining uh and i'm of course i'm judging on a scale of what it is trying to be it is trying to be a classic old school jason statham movie and it succeeds it'd be a great 
you know, marathon feature with the first couple of transporters in Crank 1. I think you'd have yeah. a good time. Uh, let's see here. Uh, bu- 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 uh, Destroy All Neighbors. Destroy All Neighbors. Uh, it's, it's an unenthusiastic C. Oh. Uh, like, I... I when something comes at me saying it's going to be crazy and it isn't, I'm a little disappointed. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so I was a little disappointed by Destroy All Neighbors. All right, uh, Night Swim. Uh, oh, C minus. <laughs> I know. I want to give it a C just because there are these entertaining like couple of moments, but oh. the, the overwhelming weight of it taking itself seriously, it it it, it doesn't. It, it doesn't. It occasionally hits camp, but it can never maintain camp. Yeah. And so it's not the most entertaining of watches. But I've seen worse. Mm. But yeah, it's a C minus. Uh, and then I guess the holdovers. The holder and the holdovers is uh, give it a C plus. I think it's it's warm, yeah. warm and watchable. Good one for the family. Uh, Alexander yeah. Payne kind of nailing a little bit more of a natural story than what he has done in the past. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to give it a uh, respectful C. Okay. Um, it just it didn't really move me. I was kind of aware of the artifice of it. Uh, but I do think the pieces are all really, really excellent. And I think Paul Giamatti and which, uh, Dominic Sessa and Dave and Joy Randolph are all really giving great performances, and that which, cannot uh, be ignored. I, I find it a little odd that you're uh, whinging about uh, Christmas movies' artificiality when you're all about the Hallmark crap. Oh, those movies are upfront about their artificiality. This uh, one's trying to hide it under a patina of, uh, of class. If this movie was, I think, more willing to admit that it's schmaltz, Mm. I think I would respect it more. All right. But the fact that it's not, and it's trying to like, no, uh, we're an Oscar movie. You're, you're, you're a well-acted you're, you're Christmas sh- movie. You're a schmaltzy Oscar you're, movie. Yeah, yeah. but let's let's just not pretend. And mm. I just feel like it's it's trying to put on airs, yeah. and I don't respect it. But um, I don't respect that. I respect the elements of the movie. Anyway, that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. We'll be back next week with reviews of some stuff. Uh, ISS... It's coming out. It's a yeah. sci-fi thriller set on the International Space Station. Sadly, we're still about a month out from Madame Web. Oh, the God. most anticipated film of the year. The, the January movie that escaped. <laughs> it's coming out on Valentine's Day. I know. Guess what? Me and my wife are going to do on Valentine's you're Day. See Madame Web. Of course, we're going to go fucking not, see Madame Web. Because you're not Web. bad people. No. Like, no, no. <laughs> um, well, and, and it, like some of our celebrity bays are in that movie, so yeah. we're going to just. Ogle the pretty people for a little while. There you go. Um, anyway, that's the not Madam Web. The other thing we'll be reviewing that, and other things as well. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want to talk about anything we discussed this episode, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Mm-hmm. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, if you want to listen to all of our new shows ad-free, I hate them too, uh, you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Even $1 a month, you get ad-free episodes and episodes of Thank Godzilla. It's Friday one week early, but if you go to the higher tiers we give you a lot of wow, podcasts there's a yeah, huge catalog that opens up huge, huge uh, at various tiers of shows about uh, every movie ever nominated for best picture at the academy awards every single episode of star trek ever made uh we, we have ambitious stuff <laughs> um and a huge shout out to all of our patrons I, every we, i never want to forget to give a shout out to our patrons without you we wouldn't exist we couldn't exist we wouldn't want to exist as a podcast that sounded darker than i intended um <laughs> Thank you so much for all your support. And, um, yeah, we're on social media at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William DeBeyon. I'm at Vincent And never forget, everyone is a critic. I want to go to the midnight show.
I'm sorry, what?